From the studios of the Mayo Clinic News Network, this is Mayo Clinic Radio, exploring the latest developments in health and medicine and what they mean to you. Welcome everyone to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McCrae. Health and medicine in the news. Often the reports provide useful information about new developments that can make a difference in our lives. But sometimes news stories miss the point. You are given equal pegging, as it were, in terms of relative importance with stuff that has no basis in science at all. And no matter how high you pile anecdote, it does not science make. Sorting out myth from reality in health news. Also on the program, why regular physical activity can be key to healthy aging. And whether it's in the paint on your walls, in the soil in your garden, or your drinking water, lead is a serious health threat. All that along with this week's health and medical news right after this. Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McCrae. You know, if you follow health and medical news, you know that it's not uncommon to hear conflicting reports, to say the least, on a particular topic. And sometimes those reports also seem, well, you know, a little exaggerated, especially when it comes to things like safety and risk and whether or not something's really, truly bad for you. Take food, for example. Things like gluten and processed foods, including my favorite, bacon, are regularly in the news. And often the focus just seems to be on how bad they are for you. I hope you quit eating bacon. You know how bad it is <laughs> for you. Yeah. To be fair, the news reports are often based on studies or pronouncements from major organizations. For example, take the recent announcement by the World Health Organization that said it was placing bacon hot dogs, and corned beef in the same warning category as tobacco and asbestos. Now, that generated a lot of coverage. In the studio to talk about media coverage of health topics and to offer some advice on sorting through it all is Mayo Clinic Preventative Medicine Specialist, Dr. Donald Hensrud. Also joining us, Mayo Clinic Gastroenterologist, Dr. Joseph Murray. Welcome back to the program to both of you. Thank you. Happy to be here. So, guys, tell us now, what should we believe and what should we question? Well, I think you need to know who is your source. So is the source a professional journalist? And I expect that professional journalists have some standards to maintain. They don't want to tell untruths. It doesn't mean they tell the whole truth and nothing but the truth, but they will tell what might be, are they motivated by entertainment purposes, excitement? Obviously, new news are, as you just uh, described, this dramatic news of how bacon is so bad for us coming from no lesser an organization, the World Health Organization. Of course, that gets our attention. And that's, of course, what you want to do. If you're a media outlet, you've got to compete for the attention of the population. I think there needs to also be a recognition of some balance here. if you actually listen beyond the headline, most of the good outlets, when they discuss that, they go past that this is in the same category as tobacco. It's in the same category, but it's not to the same degree. Tobacco is a known carcinogen. It is one of the major impacts on our health of the world global population, now increasing in the developing world as the tobacco companies have moved there. Um, Where's bacon? Yes, it's bad for you, at least, but it's a much lesser degree of bad for you, and the actual risk is much smaller. Dr. Hensrud, 
You would agree? I, I do agree. As Dr. Murray said, we need balance. And I like to look at this as nutrition information and other information is generally evolutionary rather than revolutionary. We don't take what we've learned through uh, decades of research and suddenly turn it upside down on the latest study. Few times that happens. Every once in a while, yes, but as a general rule, we modify what we already know to be true and tweak it more than turn it upside down. You know, I have friends who are pig farmers or they uh, raise cattle, so this probably didn't go over very well with them. But how many people do you think actually took this warning to heart and and are going to quit eating bacon or hot dogs? I think that many people, it will justify what they're already doing. Dr. Murray made a good point about risk. The relative risk of tobacco, for example, is very high. And if people do that over a long period of time, there's a strong chance they may get lung cancer. The relative risk that the World Health Organization said for eating two ounces every day of bacon is only a relative risk of less than 1.2, increases people's risk by 20% of something that uh, colorectal cancer that's not that common and we have a good screening test for. So is there a risk there? Yes. But let's put it in perspective in the big picture. And they didn't do that. I mean, they put it in the same warning category as tobacco and asbestos, both of which we know cause lung cancer. And the the uh, evidence that bacon, hot dogs, and corned beef cause colon cancer is weak at best. And colon cancer, much less common. I mean, wow. I think I would qualify that. There's a difference between the evidence is weak and that the effect is weak. And I think really the message that we get, and this, the WHO panel that studied this was not a group of amateurs. These are a group of professional epidemiologists, scientists who study the effect of disease in populations, who rigorously examined all of the studies, and there are not a few studies, there are a lot of studies on this, good, well-done scientific studies, and they examined them and sifted the evidence. So what I would say is the evidence is good, the evidence might even be strong, the effect is weak, and that's quite different from weak evidence. Sure. The, the other thing, this isn't new news. They, they looked at 800 studies going back many years. I have a slide that I've used in talks from 2002 that shows the same thing. So this is a, they finally came to this conclusion. It did get a lot of attention because the WHO is the one who's saying it, but we've known some of these things for a while, and again, we need to put them in perspective. I would think, though, that uh, when you put this relatively new phenomenon of social media into it and you want click, uh, people to click on whatever you've got or to retweet whatever you just posted, uh, having something that puts a little piece of fear or outrageousness or, I don't know, just plain old weirdness. What's worse is vegetarian diets could be bad for the environment. I mean, <laughs> see stuff like this every day on major news sources. I think as well there needs to be, we talked about the, the strength of evidence and the approach of a reporter or media in reporting a study, for example. So, for example, this study you just mentioned, that's one study. It will be quite controversial, whereas the WHO in reviewing data was as as Don said, is hundreds of studies where they've aggregated the evidence. So the evidence is strong that bacon, unfortunately, and other processed meats might be bad for us, but they're not very bad for us. They're a little 
bad for us. All right, bad for us, and, and I must admit I didn't read the article very carefully. What did the WHO really say? That if you eat uh, too many hot dogs, uh, too much bacon, too much corned beef, it increases your risk for colon cancer? Yeah, they looked at uh, um, processed meat and red meat. And each 50 grams, about two ounces of processed meat a day, increases the risk of cancer by 18%. Each four ounces of red meat increases it by the same amount, about 17% or so. So it's assuming you eat it every day, and it's assuming that, uh, and as, as Dr. Murray said, the risk is not that great over time. And finally, to put it in perspective, it was mainly colorectal cancer, and as I mentioned before, we've got a good screening test. So if people are staying up to date on screening, that mitigates the risk of developing it uh, a lot. Dr. Murray, I don't know how many times you have been on the show to talk about celiac disease and gluten. And as the gluten wave has swept through the nation over the last few years and all these products that are now gluten-free and restaurants that have dishes that are gluten-free, and I'm sure at first you thought, oh, this is great. People are becoming more aware of celiac disease and gluten. Maybe it's not after um, months and months I, I of I think there's only one way to describe it. It's a frenzy of misinformation. Uh, I think there is a lot of misinformation in this, Tom. Um, I think it is an example of how the media have amplified, some media have amplified what is not science and put it on a pedestal equal to science. And I think that this is something, as a scientist involved in this area, as well as someone who sees a lot of patients who think they've got problems with gluten, and you pl- try to apply science, even in a discussion on public media, you are given equal pegging, as it were, in terms of relative importance with stuff that has no basis in science at all, or at best is what's based on what we call anecdote, and no matter how high you pile anecdote, it does not science make. We're talking about media coverage of health and medical news. Our guests are Mayo Clinic Preventative Medicine Specialist, Dr. Donald Hensrud, and Gastroenterologist, Dr. Joe Murray. We'll take a short break, and when we come back, more on separating hype from reality in health news. You're listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network. Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shive. And I'm Tracy McRae. We are back with preventive medicine specialist, Dr. Donald Hensrud. He is also the medical editor of the Mayo Clinic Diet Book and also Mayo Clinic gastroenterologist, Dr. Joseph Murray. So, gentlemen, and particularly Dr. Murray, let's talk a little bit more about uh, gluten. We know that if someone has celiac disease, and I want you to tell us exactly what that is, they need to avoid gluten. But for most others, not true. Right? I'm perfectly right, Tom. So celiac disease is an inflammatory condition. It damages the small intestine. It happens in people with certain genetic background, mostly Caucasians. And when they eat gluten, and it could happen at any time in life, their body starts to react against it. It damages the intestine. And they get symptoms like bloating, gas, diarrhea, weight loss. They may fail to grow normally as a child, for example. They, but they can get problems outside of the gut, too. It can affect the bones, the skin, the nervous system. Uh, indeed, almost every system in the body could be uh, affected by it. And we know it affects almost 1% of the population. And as I said, it can come out at any age. Those people, once we identify this disease, need to be gluten-free. Absolutely. But I don't mean to interrupt, but that you, there's a blood test for that, yeah. right? You so can be certain that someone has yeah. So you can do disease. a blood test. is very accurate. It's not perfect. So we still recommend that most patients go on to have the disease confirmed by an endoscopy with a biopsy, a simple outpatient test. And this a familial condition? It can run in families. So if there is one case in the family, it's more common to find it in other family members. But it 
often occur sporadically without a family history. Okay, so we know those people who have celiac disease need to avoid gluten because they can't digest it properly. It makes them sick. Yeah. Um, what about the rest of us? Most other people don't need to avoid gluten. It's part of bread, which is the basis for Western civilization, is based on wheat. So for most people, there's probably a net benefit to including wheat and whole grains, especially in your diet. But there is a small group of people, probably no bigger than the group of patients with celiac disease, who are gluten sensitive but who don't meet the criteria for celiac disease diagnosis. And there are people who may benefit from reducing or restricting gluten. We do not have a test for that. We do not have a good way of identifying them. Often when I meet patients who think they are better on a gluten-free diet, we find it's actually something else that's the problem. So, But I don't ignore that. I don't disagree with success where a patient has found significant success in, a, in alleviating a health issue by avoiding gluten. But I do want to look hard to make sure we're not actually dealing with celiac disease or there isn't some other important issue going on. I want to know, though, how do you give yourself a gluten stress test? If you do not have celiac disease, so if you have some chronic complaint like gaseousness, bloating, diarrhea, for example, you should be evaluated by your doctor to find out what's going on, and they should do a test for celiac disease. But let's say they do it and they tell you, oh, we can't really find anything. Maybe it's a kind of a chronic functional diarrhea is a common medical term that's used. Well, there's no harm in trying a gluten-free diet, and you need to do it just for about two to four weeks. And if you feel dramatically better, report back to the doctor, number one. And two, it may be reasonable to continue that so long as your diet also hits all of the nutritional needs. Because when you drop gluten from your diet, you're dropping a lot of the cereal products that are fortified with, with vitamins. For example, folic acid, very important for women of rep reproductive age. And when you go gluten-free, a lot of the gluten-free foods are not fortified with that vitamin. Also, fiber is less by going gluten-free. Coming at it from a preventive point of view, as Dr. Murray said, uh, up to 1% of people have celiac disease, and maybe 1% to 2% or something like that have gluten sensitivity. 20 to 25% of people in the public are looking for gluten-free products because they'll think they'll be healthier. That's the misnomer there. There are studies from the nurses' uh, health study, the health professionals' follow-up study. They looked at 120,000 people followed for a number of years, and those people who ate whole grains, such as wheat and barley that contain gluten, actually had a decreased risk not only of developing heart disease, but a 20% decrease in mortality from heart disease and a slight decrease in overall mortality. So for people who can tolerate gluten and don't have celiac disease, there is a health benefit to including whole grains that contain gluten. This reminds me of what happened to eggs. It was don't eat eggs because they've got cholesterol, and now eggs are enjoying a resurgence. We, we have a, a bad guy that resurfaces every year or two, and it, <laughs> and it recycles. Okay, so let's keep going with this list. You mentioned we started off talking about bacon. What about something near and dear to my heart is caffeine? Where are we at with caffeine now? Is it good or is it bad? You know, overall, it's good. I have patients that come in my office and they start apologizing for the, the amount of coffee that they're drinking. If you look at the studies closely, coffee is related to a decreased risk of liver disease and liver cancer, Parkinson's disease, type 2 diabetes, possibly Alzheimer's, improved mood, uh, decreased reaction time. The list goes on and on. The main issue with coffee is some people are susceptible to the side effects such as heartburn or palpitations or staying up at night. And we metabolize caffeine genetically. So that explains why some people like my wife can have a cup of coffee and go to sleep at night. And if I have a cup late in the afternoon, uh, I'm up that night because I'm a slow metabolizer. 
Overall, coffee is associated with more health, much more health benefit than health risks if people can tolerate it and if you enjoy it, of course. I'll throw another one back at you. What about soda and diet soda and energy drinks? Well, I would take on those as, one, they're bad for your teeth because most of them are quite acidic. The second is that that caffeine is is it's chemically made. It's not derived from a plant. It is chemically manufactured, and probably no more than two or three plants in the world make all of our world's caffeine that are added, as opposed to a natural source like coffee. They also don't come with the antioxidants, etc., that are present in coffee. So I don't think you can take work done on coffee and extrapolate it to all sorts of caffeine. The other things we dislike about about soda pop is all of those empty calories. And so that cannot be good for you. There are also differences in how we metabolize fructose, for example, which is high fructose corn sweeteners, from regular sugar. And there have been efforts to try and rename high fructose corn sweetener as corn sugar, but it's not sugar. It is chemically different, and the way it's metabolized by the liver is different. Uh, so you're talking about the diet sodas, and you're not keen on well, those either. Well, the diet sodas are another crowd. Those are the <laughs> not the, the, the sweeteners. And it turns out right. that scientifically, even no-calorie sweeteners may actually change the way we metabolize other calories. So they're not so clean in terms of when they say zero calories. It doesn't mean that their net impact on our total intake is actually zero calories. There's some theoretical work or experimental work that suggests that eating sweet, anything sweet, may actually change your metabolism. For regular soda, people can do this experiment. In a 20-ounce regular soda, there is 17 teaspoons of sugar. And that's how many grams of sugar, how much sugar you're taking with every regular soda. All right, one more quick one, Dr. Hensrud, and that is there are some who would suggest that you can be obese and still be healthy. In general, increased weight is related to adverse health effects. However, it's not quite that simple. For example, we use body mass index or BMI as a surrogate for weight. Well, somebody who has a lot of muscle mass and has a high BMI is at pretty low health risks. Even among my patients who are heavy, I mentioned to them that if they can increase their activity, their health will improve. Is it better to be fit and heavy than, than heavy and not fit? Absolutely. So, Dr. Murray, in conclusion, what criteria should we use when you're evaluating the medical report that you hear and the nightly news? I think you need to look past, is it based on science? And what was the body that reported the science? So WHO, very reputable body, their only interest is world health. They have nothing else. Is there conflict of interest? Does this come from a constituency that's already got a um, an iron in the fire, whether that's a branding iron or something else in the fire? That means they may be, may be a bias or a conflict. We always, as scientists, we always take that into account. So is there a conflict? And then listen past the headline. It's not just a headline. And it may be the second line or the third line that qualifies, say, for example, the degree of risk of processed meats. All right. Listen to the source. That's key. huh? Dr. Donald Hensrud, preventive medicine specialist and gastroenterologist, Dr. Joseph Murray. Thanks both of you for being here. Thank you. Thank you. Coming up on Mayo Clinic Radio, none of us can escape the effects of aging, but there's one thing that most of us can do to help ensure we stay healthy as we age. Find out what it is. And lead poisoning has been in the news lately. We'll talk about the hazards of lead in drinking water and from other environmental sources. Coming up, the latest health and medical news with Vivian Williams. You're listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network. Hi, I'm Vivian Williams with your Mayo Clinic Minute. Why should you bother to donate blood? 
During the winter months, blood's often in short supply as fewer people donate over the busy holidays. The need for blood is ongoing. Donating only takes about an hour, but your gift can make a lifetime of difference for those who need it. The need is constant for blood. Dr. Justin Kreuter is the medical director of Mayo Clinic's Blood Donor Center. Uh, it enables us to do life-saving surgeries. It enables us to provide life-saving medical treatments for patients. Dr. Kreuter encourages people to donate blood, and he also wants to thank the people who have already done so. Now, what happens when you donate? Well, there are five steps. You register, you fill out electronic health forms, you have your vital signs checked, you donate the blood, then you have a snack to boost your blood sugar. It doesn't matter what type of blood you are, every type is needed. And remember, donating only takes about an hour of your time, and when you give, others live. And in other news, rheumatoid arthritis is a chronic inflammatory disorder that typically affects the small joints in your hands and feet. Unlike the wear and tear damage of osteoarthritis, rheumatoid arthritis affects the lining of your joints, causing a painful swelling that can eventually result in bone erosion and joint deformity. Rheumatoid arthritis increases your risk of developing some complications. Those include osteoporosis, carpal tunnel syndrome, heart problems, and lung disease disease. So be sure to check with your doctor. And I'm Vivian Williams. And for more health news, visit the Mayo Clinic News Network. Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shive. And I'm Tracy McRae. As we get older, Tracy, we tend to slow down. Maybe not me, but I know you're slacking off a little bit lately. <laughs> just a little bit. And generally, we accept that as a fact of life. I mean, it just happens. You do slow down. Your memory's not quite as good. It's just the way it is. But staying physically active, including exercising regularly, can play an important role in whether we age with health on our side. Indeed, our next guest calls exercise the keys to the kingdom of healthy aging. Here to talk about how to use exercise to increase the chances that you'll live a healthy life as you get older, Dr. Ed Cragen. Dr. Cragen is editor-in-chief of the book called The Mayo, Mayo Clinic on Healthy Aging and the author of How Not to Be My Patient. Dr. Cragen's day job is as a cancer specialist and a palliative care specialist at Mayo Clinic. Welcome to the program again, Dr. Cragen. Good to have you. Thank you. Great Always nice to, to see you. Here. Thank you, Tom. You're going the distance. Absolutely, because nobody cares, Tom. The healthcare system is in chaos. It is not a system. Marcus Welby is probably in rehab. Uh, <laughs> and we, we need to take care of ourselves. Uh, Dr. Kildare is no longer available. There's a fascinating book by Dan Butner called Blue Zones. And he looks at those pieces of real estate on the planet where people live the longest. And these are places like Sardinia, like Azerbaijan in the central part of Asia, Loma Linda, California, certain cities in Peru. and the Des most, Moines. Don't forget Des Moines. Uh, Waterloo. <laughs> Waterloo. Waterloo. <laughs> and the most consistent factor in the lives of these people is regular conscientious physical activity. No so kidding. I wanted to go back and say, what is healthy aging? Is healthy aging uh, exercise is a component of healthy aging, With or that, is it? Healthy aging. Well, exercise. I mean, I thought you were supposed to rest when you retired. No, if, if you rest, you'll be resting for a long time. <laughs> but the data, again, are overwhelming that the usual recommendation is 150 minutes of physical activity a day. That's a no-brainer. That's like 30 minutes most days of the week. And that's enough to dramatically decrease the risk of stroke, depression, and heart disease. 
And if we look at the great cripplers of our society, obesity, high blood pressure, diabetes, and so on, the antidote, the antidote is not in the medical community with a pill, but with a running shoe that I have right here. The future belongs to the fit. How, why do you think it is so difficult to overcome the problem of obesity in this country? It's clearly multifactorial, Tom, as, as we've often said. And it's not a case of here is your 1,500-calorie diet and here's your application for the YMCA. There are profound emotional, psychological issues. And the person who has been most visible about this is Oprah Winfrey. I used to get the New England Journal of Medicine, but they rejected seven of my manuscripts. I now get Sports Illustrated, the Racing <laughs> Forum, and Oprah. And you're probably quite Playboy after the yeah, uh, first well, of I, the year. Yeah. I'm about, I was a centerfold several years ago before <laughs> surgery. But if you look at Oprah's <laughs> magazine of this month, on the cover is Oprah, and she says, this is it. I'm finally turning the corner on the weight issue. So here's a, 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 an iconic woman, a towering personality who has struggled with weight, showing how difficult it is. So if there's a disease of the soul, if there is an emotional lesion that's not addressed, all the exercise and lifestyle modifications simply will not work. And, you know, Oprah uh, made a big investment in Weight Watchers. Did you see that? And it was uh, about $12 a share, I think, when she bought it, and it's 25 now. So we should have hopped on that bandwagon. <laughs> I suppose we should have. Yeah. Well, what about some, you know, if you – I didn't start running until I was in my 40s. You know, what do you say to people who are in their 60s? And you don't have to start with marathons. You know, what do you tell people who just are not – regular exercisers. We emphasize to them, Tracy, that this needs to be a lifestyle overhaul. For example, we were at a function over the weekend, and we fully anticipated that there would be dinner, some sort of a buffet. There was no dinner. It was high-fat, sugary, Christmas-type stuff. Mm. So we, we looked at it. I got chest pain. It became <laughs> nauseous. And then we simply excused ourselves and got a real meal. Whenever Peggy and I travel, we bring our own meals on board. We find the vegetarian restaurants. So it takes effort, but if we're dead, that effort ain't going to count. What do you think about the uh, wearable devices um, to help people count count steps, count exercising, count sure. steps, etc.? I'm smiling because many people will have a stroke just trying to upload all this stuff on their computer. <laughs> and I think the wearables are, are cool, but the people that buy the wearables are the people that are motivated anyway to exercise. So it is nice to see how many steps you've worked. But the bottom line, there needs to be that inner locus of control, that decision that we make is that I want to take charge of my health and well-being because the system is not there to do it for us. I know that you are a runner, and I have um, paid attention to running a little bit more now since I started, and it's I have heard that the average age of the beginning runner is getting older and older all of the time, which I think is kind of curious that um, as people are into middle age, they're starting running for the first time. When did you start running? Well, your problem is you don't get up early enough. You've got to start at 4.15 <laughs> yeah. in the morning. Then you'll be able to go for it. Tracy, I started to run when I was eight years of age. Why? I went to a Catholic school in the bowels of Newark, New Jersey. This was not Shaker Heights or Edina. 
and we had no play area. This was in the middle of the of the ghetto, and they had us run around the block. And if you lost the race, you had to sit in church for the noontime. <laughs> so there's a that's really, your motivation. Absolutely, that's how it all started. But I am so grateful for the coaches I've had, the opportunities that I've had. And it creates a sense of wellness and empowerment that you cannot replace with a pill. So what do you want to say to folks who, I'm not saying that everybody should become a runner, but maybe to start swimming? Or is it even just walking? I think it's any sort of physical activity, vacuuming, using a broom, anything that increases our pulse and makes us perspire is healthy. But I would encourage our listeners, touch base with your doctor. And equally importantly, invest once or twice in a personal trainer. The equipment is very intimidating. Lifting free weights can be dangerous. Invest in yourself. Invest in yourself. And that way we can go the distance in the most important race of our lives. Walking is just as good as anything Absolutely. as long as you do it every day. Running a four-minute mile or walking for four minutes has the same benefit on our health and well-being. Thanks, Dr. Cragen, for sharing your thoughts about exercise and healthy aging. Dr. Ed Cragen is a oncologist, cancer specialist, and a palliative care specialist at Mayo Clinic. And he's the author of How Not to Be My Patient and editor-in-chief of Mayo Clinic on Healthy Aging. Always great to have you on the program. Likewise, Thanks for coming here. Thank you. We're going to take a short break. When we come back, consuming even small amounts of lead can be dangerous, especially if you're a child or pregnant. We'll have an update on the hazards of lead poisoning. You're listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network. Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shive. And I'm Tracy McRae. For several weeks now, news stories have been giving us details about contaminated drinking water in Flint, Michigan. Now, apparently, ever since the city switched its water source to the polluted Flint River, bad stuff in the water has been leaching out of old plumbing and old pipes. Now, that has caused enough lead in the water to contaminate the drinking supply so that thousands of Flint residents have tested positive for dangerously high levels of lead in their blood. Sounds like a movie. No, why did they ever go to that river to get water? (laughs) Well, lead poisoning is a serious business, and it is especially dangerous to children and pregnant women. Here to talk about the risks associated with lead consumption is Mayo Clinic Occupational Medicine Specialist, Dr. Laura Breer. Welcome to the program, Dr. Breer. It's nice to meet you. Nice to meet you, too. Thank you for having me. Thanks, Dr. Breer. You know, I was really surprised to see this because we used to talk a lot about lead poisoning, but I thought it was all because of the lead in the paint, and I hadn't really even heard or thought about lead poisoning until I read this story. That's true. Lead in the paint is the most common cause of lead poisoning in kids, and it's the one that's the most talked about. Um, But lead in water um, is something that's been that's had increasing awareness lately, and certainly the situation in Flint has brought that to the forefront. So these are pollutants. I assume that the lead came from somewhere, and it must have been some factory or manufacturing facility, or where did the lead come from? Um, So in this case, the lead came from the pipes. Um, So historically, uh, pipes for plumbing and for getting water into houses were soldered together, or those pipes had lead in the metal um, with the pipes. So 
uh, certain water treatment plants, most water treatment plants, put in additives in the water to decrease corrosion from the water going through those pipes. Uh, so it wasn't really in the river. It no. was in the in the pipes that uh, were, were getting the water from the river. The river water was making the pipes leach the le- the lead out. Exactly. Hmm. Exactly. So we when need you need new pipes. <laughs> well, <laughs> yes and no. So you know those those old pipes are everywhere, right? Oh, are they? Um, and over time, those pipes develops kind of they it develops a protective coating, so the uh-huh. risk of lead getting into the water is much much less. Um, certain water supplies will be more acidic, and that causes that protective coating to um, kind of disintegrate, and it causes the lead to leach into the water. So the so. pipes are all cleaned out, but unfortunately, then you're getting that in the water. Yeah, exactly. So what ha- first of all, why is lead so bad for us? Well, lead is a toxin. So um, lead's toxic to many organ systems. To um, It can cause GI problems like abdominal pain and constipation. It can cause neurologic problems, um, memory problems, developmental delays in kids, um, reproductive effects. So it affects many, many organ systems within the body, and it's a preventable cause. So we want to make sure that we minimize and eliminate the risk. So too. that's why we said for children and pregnant ladies because um, of those developmental pieces. Adults, prob- adults not so bad? Um, well, it's not good for anyone, sure. right? <laughs> right. Um, it's not good for anyone, but uh, it's especially bad for children and for pregnant women um, because of the fetus growing and because of breastfeeding the baby, um, because children absorb lead to a greater extent and it causes um, more health effects that can be long-term. Do you remember when we used to have those lead pencils, the wooden pencils, and yeah. you to stick the end of your, on your tongue? That must not have been enough. That was, Maybe that's my problem. Yeah, that's your problem, all right. <laughs> well, do that all the time when we were kids. You mentioned the main reason I think people would go to, the main culprit would be lead poisoning and paint. Exactly. Is there still... I mean, in the old homes, I suppose there's still that lead paint is still on the walls behind yeah. other layers of paint. But yeah. th- th- you can't buy. They're not still making lead in the paint, are they? Well, it depends on what paint you're talking about. So household paint, no. The Clean Air Act banned lead in household paint in the late 1970s. Um, but there is lead in paint for certain applications, you know, for industrial ap- applications like coating bridges and um, for other sorts of manufacturing because um, it is a very sturdy material. So if you go to Lowe's and you buy paint for your house, there's no lead in the paint. But um, if you have a house that's built before 1978, most likely there's a layer of lead paint somewhere along the walls. So if you're doing home renovations, you have to be careful of that. If you're living in Flint, uh, what was what symptoms might these people have who have been exposed to too much lead? And how do you how do you confirm that? Um, so lead can cause a variety of symptoms and part of the issue is that they can sometimes be kind of vague symptoms. So, you know, sometimes people can have stomach aches and constipation or, um, problems with concentration, some kind of diffuse muscle aches. Um, so the best thing that you can do is have kind of a high index of suspicion, um, and, get to your doctor and ask about that. Um, In children, they routinely screen children for elevated lead, usually at ages one and two. In Um, blood? 
blood test? With blood tests? Yeah. Yep. So, um, wildly popular with toddlers doing <laughs> that blood test. I the blood you. test? I never yeah. Uh, yeah. Well, the first house that we had was an old home, and yep. so we had to do that with our first child, and boy, that's a memory that I will never forget. <laughs> yes. It's not a, it's not a fun thing to no. do, but it's a good public health Absolutely. measure, and it's how they capture a lot of the kids with elevated blood blood levels early so they can treat it. How, how is it treated? That's what I was going to ask. Um, so the primary treatment, treatment might not be the right word, is to identify the source of lead and remove it. Um, and most of the time, that's the only thing that you need to do. Lead kind of um, gets out of your body very quickly. Leaches it's, out of your body just like it leached out of those pipes? Well, uh, it's the, excreted in it's some excreted way. Yeah. The, So your body knows, we got to get this out of here. Yep. The kidneys filter it out of your bloodstream and then... People that have been exposed to lead for a long time, it builds up in their bones, and so that does leach out into their bloodstream and get excreted through their kidneys. And can the damage that has happened been reversed when it comes to these children, for instance? Um, unfortunately, no. There isn't any known reversal of damage that's been caused by lead. However, you know, you do have to think of lead as kind of one exposure that a child has. So it's certainly a negative exposure. And, you know, they have other exposures developmentally, like adults interacting with them and good nutrition. And so you want to make sure that you give the child uh, the most tools to improve their development as you can and decrease the bad things like lead. All right. So you said that most of the time, if you identify the source and and get rid of the exposure to lead, that that, that things will get better. But what if the the lead level is so high that you're really concerned about it being acutely toxic? What, What can, is there a way to treat that? Yes. So there are medications that doctors can um, recommend and prescribe that bind to the lead in the bloodstream and help pull it out of the body more quickly. Um, So if someone had a really, really high lead level, like a level that was causing swelling or problems in their brain, that's something that would be considered. But it's not something that's usually done for lower levels because it can cause side effects. So how did they figure this out, that there was uh, lead in the water in Flint? From what I read, um, a a pediatrician or a primary care physician noticed uh, an increase in blood blood levels in the children that she was Uh. routinely testing um, for lead and looked at a comparison between children that were supplied by um, the water in Flint compared to children who were not supplied from that water. So even today, the kids ages one and what did you say, three, still get a, a blood lead level? Typically, it's at ages one and two. Mm-hmm. Um, yes, so my that's children... That's when they're chewing on the woodwork. Yeah. Yep, that's when, yep, that's when they're chewing on the woodwork, and that's when kind of kids go from um, crawling and not very mobile to walking mm-hmm. and putting a lot of things in their mouth, so... I yep. like it that a uh, that a very observant pediatrician figured out this issue. Yeah, so good kudos, doctors. Well, I think it was a very observant pediatrician, and it was parents. You know, hey. it sounds like parents noticed an increase or a change in the color of the water, and probably brought those concerns to the pediatrician. So, Excellent. Yep. Teamwork and communication, and yep. We learned a lot. Occupational medicine specialist, Dr. Laura Breer, Mayo Clinic. Thank (laughs) Thank you you. for being here. That's our program for this week. For more information about topics discussed today, visit us on the web at Mayo Clinic News Network. 
where you can access a podcast of today's show, previously aired programs, and the latest news from Mayo Clinic. Have a question about health and medicine for one of our Mayo Clinic experts? Tweet us anytime at hashtag Mayo Clinic Radio or send us an email at mayoclinicradio at mayo.edu. We'll be answering your questions in upcoming programs. You've been listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network. A writer for the program is Rich Dietman, our social media editor, Jennifer O'Hara. For Mayo Clinic Radio, I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McRae. Thanks for being with us. Any medical information conveyed during this program is not intended as a substitute for personal medical advice, and you should not take any action before consulting a healthcare professional. For more information, please go to our website, radio.mayoclinic.org. Please join us each week on this station for more of the medical information you want from Mayo Clinic specialists who know.